Dateline, 14th of November, 2021. <sighs> well, good Lord, I'm up before lunchtime. Well, g'day, folks, and welcome to the Australia Desk for episode 679. Grant, I'm feeling a little bit bleary-eyed here. It must be because we're up so early. We're used to recording this in the middle of the night. Yeah, I know, Steve. I, I, I'm really sorry to get you up at the crack of noon, but, you know, <laughs> we got we got to do this. we got to get this out of the way. I've got a busy day. You've got a busy day. It's stuff to do, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's pretty busy. There's lots of things, apart from me getting up this early in the middle of the night or day or whatever it is, there's other strange things that have started happening. Uh, Grant, international borders are slowly opening. So travel, which hasn't happened for a long time here, you're in the world's largest prison island. That's about to change. You're right, mate. It's been almost 586 days that our borders have been closed and Australians can't leave the country without having permission. I know a number have flown and returned, but the ability to return was pretty minimal as well. Airlines were mostly flying cargo and had very, very strict caps. There were triple sevens coming in with like 46 people on them. Madness. Mm. But that said, we can now, if you're um, fully vaxxed, i.e. double jabbed, then Australian citizens and visa holders are allowed to come back to the country. Uh, so that means they've taken out the travel ban and we're now able to go to any country that isn't a four on the scale of do not go, which I think is only a handful and most of them you wouldn't want to go to anyhow because there's all sorts of military things going on there. So, yeah, we can now leave and come back. That's almost as good as hearing that the uh, Melbourne uh, Lounge of Virgin has reopened. The Virgin Lounge in Melbourne's reopened. I can travel again. Yay. I know I know you would be excited about that, my friend. I can tell you um, uh, people should know that Grant spends a lot of time in those lounges and is, is known on a first-name basis with most of the people that oh, I think <laughs> they've forgotten them. me now. <laughs> they probably have. Yeah. They probably have. You know, it's interesting travelling internationally. Right now, I'd just be happy to travel out of the state. In fact, um, even going to Sydney would be, would be kind of interesting. And I don't actually normally like even going to Sydney, but there you go. Yeah. Well, speaking of going into Sydney, a special aircraft just flew back in and we may have uh, you know, called it last time. Well, yes and no. You know, people may have uh, remembered that I've been speculating for a while that I, I wondered if Qantas would actually ever be bringing back their A380 fleet into service. And we were chatting about that on the last Ausdesk a few weeks ago. Well, since then, it's actually happened. And this week, um, the aircraft uh, OQB, which is the second that arrived into the uh, A380 fleet for Qantas all those years ago, it's actually landed back in Sydney this week after uh, spending a long time uh, at LAX in storage and then via Dresden in Germany, where it had a lot of maintenance done, including some uh, new landing gear fitted. Uh, it's finally back here and it's uh, going to spend a few weeks in maintenance here in Sydney and then uh, it's going back into revenue service. So that's pretty uh, that's pretty good news. That's right, mate. Uh, they're saying, Qantas are saying it takes about 4,500 hours of uh, engineering activity to get an A380 from Victorville ready to go. Of course, it took less than that to get it ready to go at LAX because uh, Quebec Bravo had been sitting in, in a hangar, so it was a much better uh, world for it rather than baking in the sun. The captain flying was uh, Captain Paul Grant, and uh, here's what he had to say to Nine News this week. Emotional. I, you know, I was welling up. I had to wipe the tears to do the landing. But uh, no, it was just a beautiful day. When First Officer David Thies couldn't fly, he headed west and operated a wheat harvester in the Riverina. Now he's out of the cabin and dust and back doing what he loves. This is my passion and my love. Seeing the Sydney Harbour and the uh, the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge today was just just surreal. It has been a very challenging time for pilots all around the world. And, um, you know, Grant and I know a lot of uh, particularly Qantas pilots and some of the stories we've heard about what some of those guys have had to do 
just to get by during this uh, pandemic period. Well, you know, the stories of survival there that are inspiring and we might cover that uh, on some desks in the future, Grant. But um, let's uh, switch over to defence. There's been some interesting uh, articles that have popped up since our last desk. Um, now, of course, we talk a lot about the F-35 fleet and uh, currently there's uh, in excess of, I think, 40-odd aircraft now that have made the trip across and are now based here in Australia. But Grant, might we be uh, buying some additional ones to the current order of, I think it was 72? Yeah, the uh, they'd always spoken about doing around 100, then it was the 70-something and maybe back to, well, it looks like it's going to get close to 100 again. There are rumours circulating that uh, RAF is considering a further purchase of F-35As, basing them up at RAF Tyndall, potentially standing up 79 Squadron is what I've heard from a friend. I'll believe that when I see it, but uh, basically <laughs> another 28 F-35s. And this also is in conjunction with the whole AUKUS scenario. That's A-U-K-U-S, Australia, U-K, U-S. So that's getting us uh, the nuclear-powered subs, but also long-range missiles, the, particularly the long-range anti-ship missile is one that we're looking at. Uh, we're also looking at the Joint Strike Missile, which is from Kongsberg um, over in Europe, uh, because unfortunately the current long-range anti-ship missile won't fit in the F-35, but hey, maybe that's good under, there's already been some work done on having a Poseidon with a whole lot of uh, long-range anti-ship missiles and also a console on board to look after the loyal wingman um, and have a few of those to help defend it. So the F-35s could go in and take out a few of the um, anti-aircraft problems and then the Poseidon comes in as a bomb truck. So lots of stuff going on, lots of rumours, it's all going on all around the place, but it could be interesting if we get another 28 F-35s, that's for sure. Yeah, certainly. I think it'd be great. And uh, it's interesting that, of course, they're, they're really looking at the maritime aspect, uh, I think, here now. And, you know, there's been lots of speculation here and there ever since the F-35 order was placed about whether or not we should perhaps get some F-35Bs and pop them out on our LHDs. There's arguments for and against that, I think. You know, would we want to actually have a force projection capability or not? But, of course, we do have a huge amount of coastline in this country to defend. So I think, you know, obviously our defence planners are looking at that. And, Grant, uh, that probably leads us into the other defence story we wanted to look at uh, this time uh, with uh, tensions uh, ratcheting up a little around this region at the moment. It looks like the RAF have been doing some uh, interesting work with their P-8s and even P-3s. I didn't even know we still had any of those flying, Grant. Well, we have two AP-3Cs. They were hidden amongst the fleet in the old days. They were all made to look the same. They all had the same kind of antennas, even though for most of the fleet, they weren't using those antennas. They just had the the fins and things like that and the fairings. But uh, yes, with the retirement of the AP-3C a couple of years, I think it was a couple of years ago now, the two that remain that are the uh, ELINT birds, as they call them, for uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance and electronic warfare, they're now sticking out like the proverbial because uh, we can't hide them in the fleet. So, yes, um, operating out of Singapore, which is uh, kind of surprising because normally we'd be operating out of Butterworth in Malaysia, but uh, Singapore, a little closer to where they're heading. You've got the AP3Cs. Uh, they've been over there a bit last year, a few times this year. We've also got the, our new P8 Poseidons uh, operating out of there and alternating plus also a tanker, one of the KC-30s up there to help give the uh, P-8 some uh, range and loiter time. Now, of course, the P-8 has uh, its transponder on while it's in Malaysian airspace, but then once it's out, it turns it off. But generally, it's heading up the coast of Malaysia and then heading out towards the South China Sea. And that's the indicator that they could be going out over the Spratleys. No one knows exactly where they're going, but 
it's likely that they're doing freedom of na- air navigation. They may be checking a few things out and seeing what's going on there because the Spratleys contested between a number of places, but also the worst part about it is that the Chinese have just gone in there and turned them from a small atoll into a full military base effectively. Quite amazing um, if you use Google Earth and look around for some of the other photos that have been released from some civilian satellites. It's pretty full on what's going on out there. So, yeah. Don't really know exactly what they're doing, but the suspicion is that they're going out there and uh, operating in the South China Seas, monitoring and proving that we're still allowed to by international law. Uh, the Spratlys. You know, Grant, I remember reading a, uh, a great uh, book by the author of Flight of the Old Dog by Dale Brown many, many years ago in the 90s that was dealing with theoretical wars around the Spratly Islands and all that sort of stuff. And here we are now, all these years later, and it's kind of like life imitating art in some ways. It's just quite concerning. It is, mate. It is. It's interesting times. Uh, we uh, await to see there's some hawks saying we should be going confrontational and not letting people do things. We've got people saying, hang on, we should placate, we should be friends. And the hardest bit for Australia is that we need to boost our defences to protect our northern waterways so that we can continue trading with a country that we're protecting ourselves against. Because China's our biggest trade partner. And also, yeah. now all this, it's it's just insane. And it's, yeah, fascinating to watch. But, hey, speaking of fascinating to watch. <laughs> yes, uh, Grant. Now, uh, folks, uh, just as we wrap up here, we, sh- we should mention that Grant and I, um, it's not like we've stopped doing podcasting. In fact, we produce a lot of podcasts, including the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. The latest one is episode 19, and that's dealing with the centenary of the Royal Australian Air Force. And, Grant, you've thrown together a really neat uh, video presentation that we'd like to point people's attention to. It's uh, available on YouTube, and it's a video that accompanies the audio. So it's the audio from the podcast interview Stuart Wilson, supplementing an article he wrote for Australian Defence Magazine's November edition on the history of the RAAF. The fun part is that with working with Nigel Pittaway, the editor of the magazine, he's selected about 140 photos or so, and I've put the whole lot together into a slideshow that you can watch while you're listening to the uh, to the interview. So uh, yep. feel free to check that out. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. Yep, Grant, I'll send the link. Uh, but in the meantime, you can always check out uh, australiandefence.com.au, a great magazine. Well, we must say that because we make their podcast for them. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's a great magazine. Well, that's everything we have for you on this week's Australia Desk. I told you we'd be back. We said two weeks. It's been four. Yeah, okay. two, two, four. <laughs> well, well, you know, we use the metric system here. So uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe two imperial measurement weeks is four weeks in reality. I think you could be right there, mate. It could be. Okay, until next time, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. Cheers, folks.